Welcome back to the Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson. Today we find ourselves in Canto 7 of Dante's Inferno, a canto that presents us with two groups of damned souls, those who misused money and those who misused anger. And in between these two is a discussion about fortune, or what we might call luck, or divine providence. The canto starts abruptly, with a five-word line that hints at some meaning, but no one has ever determined just what that meaning is. Pape Satan, Pape Satan Alepe. It's Plutus who speaks these words. That creature Dante and Virgil had come across at the end of the previous canto, blocking their way to the pass that would lead them down to the next circle of hell. Dante's obviously overcome once again by fear, because Virgil immediately reassures him that this creature will have no power to stop them. He then turns to Plutus. Stop right now, cursed wolf. Eat that anger of yours. You can't stop this man from proceeding. He has divine sanction for coming here. And at those, wo- and at those words, this fierce beast collapses, as Chaco had done in the previous canto, or as Dante says, like the sails of a ship when the mast is broken. No wind in his sails now. Dante and Virgil continue their way, coming to the fourth circle of hell. What new pains do they see here? Well, here Dante sees two groups of souls in two long queues, forming two large semicircles. Each person in the queue is straining to push a huge weight, like the rock Sisyphus pushes endlessly uphill in Greek mythology. When a person gets to the head of the queue, he or she is face to face with the leading person in the opposing queue, and the two of them shove their heavy weights against each other, a futile effort that just makes a lot of noise and takes a lot of energy. As they bang their weights against each other, the one person shouts, Perché tieni? And the other, Perché burli? Why do you hoard? Why do you squander? And then they both push their weights back, back, back again to the end of the queue and start the process over again. These are the avaricious, and Dante divides this sin into two groups of people who abused the beneficial uses of money. On the one hand are the misers, those who went to the extreme of grasping money, piling it up, holding on to more than they could ever use. The other group are those who have let money go out of their hands too freely, who have squandered, wasted their money. And among this second group, Dante notices that most are clergymen, including popes and cardinals. Let me look and see if I can recognize any of these souls, Dante says to Virgil. No point, Virgil replies. These people, when alive, never distinguished properly between what money was and what money could buy, and now we can't even distinguish any features of their faces. Their concern for money deprived them of the beauties of life. And Virgil shifts his discussion from these worthless souls to a more general explanation of the role of fortune in our world which is constantly shifting our situation in life, now giving us good things, now taking them away. This fortune is established by God to distribute worldly goods. 
which include money, of course, but also political power, prestige, health, constantly in motion between people and nations. Thus, it's, it's foolish to think we can always hold on to good fortune, foolish to take it for granted, and impossible to understand how or why fortune distributes these things. All we can know for certain is that things are always changing, moving in a pattern far beyond anything we can discern. All this time they've been walking across this fourth circle, and at the other side, the far edge, they discover a little spring of very dark water, bubbling up. They follow the water as it pours down the slope, leading to the next circle, where it then opens up to feed a marsh known as Styx. This is the fifth circle of hell, where Dante sees the foul water filled with naked, muddy bodies, all fighting with each other, hitting, head-butting, banging chest to chest, biting and ripping one another with their teeth. Here you see the angry souls, Virgil says, and underneath the water are others, sullen, despairing, slothful souls, visible only through the bubbles coming up to the surface, which is their only way of expressing how they turned from all the pleasures of the world when alive. This marsh is circular like all the other areas of the Inferno, and Dante and Virgil walk around the circle, staying on the bank of the swamp, watching all these rabid figures. And then they find themselves at the foot of a high tower. And with that, the canto ends. Canto 7 is a canto in which Dante identifies no one and speaks to none of the damned souls. He just observes from a distance. And so, despite all the noise coming from the crashing boulders and the shouts of the avaricious and the clamour of the fighting angry souls, this is, in a sense, a quiet canto. Let's look at the shape of this canto, which can give us a focus on how we might understand it. There are three main sections, forming a significant pattern. The first and the third sections mirror each other in several ways. They each deal with one circle of hell, and each of these circles deals with two opposite kinds of sinners under the same sin. And sandwiched between these two circles is Virgil's discussion of the nature of fortune. Fortune, then, serves as the link between the two, a pivot that makes a connection between both sections. We'll keep that in mind as we proceed. First, we have to consider that figure who stands at the top of the pass, at the opening of the canto. He's called Pluto in Italian, but in English he's Plutus, the god of wealth. He, he gives us the word Plutocrat, someone with political power just because he's rich. He's sometimes confused with Pluto, the god of the underworld, and, and there is a link, since all wealth, all riches, gold, silver, diamonds, come from under the ground. So there are several meanings here, packed into the one figure. And Plutus appears as another one of those classical characters whom Dante employs as functionaries, acting mechanically, almost comically, as he just deflates and collapses when Virgil speaks to him. Plutus connects us both to the previous circle of hell and to the two circles featured in this canto. Virgil tells him to swallow his rage and let the anger feed on itself, 
This is a perversion of gluttony, the sin of the previous canto. And as the traditional god of wealth, he looks ahead to the avaricious in this canto, to the people who have reduced life to money, and his rage looks ahead to the final section of the canto, when we encounter the souls damned for their anger. <laughs> he, he's like a signpost set there to remind us where we are and where we'll be headed. Now for the inhabitants of this fourth circle, the hoarders and the wasters. Or, or let's be more blunt than hoarders, they're misers. What defines misers is that they hold on to more money or toilet paper or clothes from ten years ago more than they can use. This includes, I suppose, the millionaires and billionaires who hold on to more wealth than anyone could possibly ever need. Like all the sins of incontinence, miserliness takes a good thing, money or land, clothes, whatever, and carries it too far. We might at first see them as being like the previous group, the gluttons, who just wanted to possess, not enjoy the pleasures of the world. But this isn't even a pleasure the misers want to possess, only the means of pleasure. In fact, there is no pleasure at all. There might be some pleasure if you owned thirty pairs of shoes and enjoyed choosing the right shoes to go with the outfit or the activity of the day, but if you just like having all those shoes, then you're being miserly. And what about the other group of this circle, the splurgers, the wasters, who spend too much? Is this what is called retail therapy? They like spending just because it gives them some instant gratification, the thrill of owning something new. The pleasure soon fades, as we know, and then it's out to buy more clothes or another car or something. But avarice also has something to do with self-worth. The misers think their worthiness increases by the amount of wealth they possess. That's an illusion. The wasters think that their excessive spending will increase their prestige in the eyes of others. And, and perhaps this is why Dante includes so many churchmen in this group. All those popes and cardinals, princes of the church, who ignored Christ's teaching about poverty, spent fortunes in Dante's day on enormous ornamented churches and cathedrals and palaces, as though that made them important or more worthy in God's sight or our sight. And, and what are these people doing in the circle? That futile round of working so hard, pushing those weights, only to impress the other side with how powerful this weight can be. But all it does is make a big noise, and then back to the end of the queue and going through the same routine again. This is the kind of stupid, vicious circle the world of money can lead to. And why do they have blank faces and cannot be recognized? Their concern for money has not only deflected them from who they really are deep down, but it's also blinded them to the true selves of everyone else. They have no self to show you and can see no self in anyone around them. You know the type. They don't really care who you are, but judge you by how much money you make, what kind of fortune you possess. And that brings us to Virgil's discussion of fortune and the role fortune plays in our world. Fortune controls the movement of worldly goods, and she's always shifting them around. 
seeing it this way makes the avaricious people seem crazy. They're so pleased with having lots of wealth and think that establishes their worthiness and gets them somewhere, but Virgil explains that really they have no control over their wealth. It's all under the control of this power we call fortune. In secular terms, this is what we call luck, good luck or bad luck. In divine terms, this is called providence. Fortune, or Dame Fortune, was an important figure in medieval myth. Traditionally, though, she is blind, or at least blindfolded, to illustrate the way her movements seem, at least from our human perspective, to be random. But Dante does not make her blindfold. She knows exactly what she's doing, and she's following divine wisdom. It's just that from our limited viewpoint, unable to see the larger picture, the movement of worldly goods does seem blind, if not downright unfair. Dante takes away the traditional blindfold, but he retains the image of her wheel, the wheel of fortune, the symbol of the way people's fortunes, or even the fortunes of whole nations, rise and fall, and perhaps rise again and fall again. The wheel never stops, it's never still. Nothing lasts. If we fight the turning of the wheel and resent the way its turning may injure our ego, then we'll be opening the way for anger, won't we? And we'll become like those whom Dante meets next, whom he says anger has conquered. And that's significant. It's as though they've been attacked by anger and lost the fight, just as in the Stygian marsh. Each soul is being attacked by all those around it. This marsh forms the fifth circle of hell, and we have now come to the extreme of incontinence, the bridge from upper hell, incontinence, to lower hell, containing the malicious sins of violence and fraud. And anger partakes of both on the one hand incontinence, taking righteous anger against evil, taking it too far, in the wrong direction, destroying community, and, on the other, violence, which comes next in the descent. Anger arises when we don't like the deal that fortune has given us. We don't like our position in life. We don't like the people who are near us. And, and having lost the good of our intellect, we think it will ease our pain to take arms against a sea of troubles or to hurt the people in our way. The river Styx, an actual river in classical mythology, has turned in Dante into a marsh or a swamp, that is, a body of water that gets nowhere, just stagnant. And in Greek, the word Styx means hateful. All this hatred produces a rage that places us in the midst of this furious free-for-all. And then there is the other group in this circle, the souls stuck at the bottom of the marsh, whose only visible sign is the bubbles their muffled cries produce as they rise to the surface. There's been a lot of discussion about who exactly these souls represent. Dante calls them tristi, which can mean the sad people, but it can also mean several other things. Let's keep in mind the image Dante provides us. Souls hidden at the bottom sighing their complaints that when alive they had been, what, sullen, despairing, slothful? And that has led to their being here in the black mud. 
whether they were sullen or sunk in despair, giving up on life, or slothful, too lazy to engage in life, at least we can be fairly sure that these are the people who turned away from all enjoyment of life, kept below, under the water now. Perhaps in life they suppressed the anger they felt at the turn of fortune's wheel, kept that anger hidden below, and, and turned away from it all. They lived below the surface of things, not joining in, sulking in self-pity, perhaps. And these are the souls that take us to the very end of incontinence, a complete rejection of all the good things the world has to offer. Dante and Virgil walk along in safety, keeping to the bank, away from the marsh and the fighting, as though Dante knows he's safe from the sin of anger but they have somehow to get across the sticks, and how will they do it? And what does that tower there have to do with it? We'll find out next time. See you then.